I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer. Welcome back to another edition of Growing Boulder, where we prove each and every week that it's never too late to create the life that you want. On today's show, we'll talk to the former captain of the most famous and most amorous cruise ship of all time. Yep, we're talking to Captain Steubing from the Love Boat. Uh, He will share details of his fascinating life. You know, we're also going to meet one of the most in-demand speakers in the world on the art of significance, who has some tips on how to unlock your own creative side. Plus, an artist whose resolve to live was strengthened as a result of a terrorist act. And Wendy Chioji will stop by to pump us up. It's a lot to pack into an hour, but stick around, folks, and find out what we mean when we say, this is Growing Boulder. Exciting and new. Oh, I absolutely love that. Who does not love that theme song from The Love Boat? Well, our next guest, you know, is Murray Slaughter from the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Happy Haynes <laughs> from McHale's Navy. And yes, Captain Merrill Steubing. But do you really know Gavin McLeod? You're about to, folks. The captain of The Love Boat has a new autobiography out that's called This Is Your Captain Speaking. And it not only shares the inside fun of what has been an amazing career, but also some never-before-revealed details of his struggles with depression and even suicide. Let's find out more as we welcome the great Gavin McLeod. Hey, Gavin, how are you? Well, thank you very much. Good morning, guys. It's nice to be with you. Man, congratulations uh, on your book. Uh, it's it's about time you did that. Now, you spent six decades on some of the most iconic shows in history. D- does writing a book about all of that change the way you feel about your career? You had to have been amazed by all you've done. Well, when I sit back, I'm 82 now, so when I sit back and look at it all, I am amazed, and I'm very grateful because when you think about some of the handicaps I had, like being bald when I was young, and um, that's usually a handicap for an actor. But Jessica Tandy, that brilliant actress, said, you'll take what is your liability, and it'll be your asset. Hmm. So consequently, when I was starting out, I was able to do every show twice when people realized that I was fairly decent as an actor with and without my hair. So (laughs) being bald has been a major, major asset of mine, well, for my entire life. Now, Gavin, uh, I I know you don't know, but you're also talking to two people right here who are stricken with the same affliction uh, that turned into a pretty good deal for you, huh? Well, there we go. Let's salute each other. (laughs) Hey, listen, you've been, the the cool thing about you and the cool thing about the book is the characters you've played have always been the the, the smart guy, the guy who's had it all together. And then in real life, it's it's really hard for us to understand that you've had to struggle with sobriety and alcohol and depression and and even thoughts of suicide. Yeah, well, I tell you, you'd be surprised what, some people go through that you don't, it's never revealed. Uh, very successful people, you know, have low points in their life. And in, in, my, in, my, in my situation there, if you remember, uh, I had done another Broadway play in 19. I was, I was riding pretty high here doing guest star roles on most of the television things. And then I had a deal to go to New York for this new play, and I really wanted to do this. And my wife wanted me to do this, and we just had our second child. And so my producer said, okay, we're sold out for a month, so bring your family. So I brought them, and um, we only played for a week. Hmm. It was devastating to us young people. And uh, so I came home, and I had a house going up (laughs) for $26,750. It was a lot of money for me then. And so I didn't know what to do, and I did a couple of gigs, and uh, I said, I'm going to use the last money I have as, a, as our closing cost to get into the house. And I started to pray that God would get me something. I had a call. As a matter of fact, Robert Blake and I were very good friends at that time. He was at my house when I got the telegram to come and see them for McHale's Navy. They were doing a new series with Ernie Borgnine. Well, I had great admiration for Ernie Borgnine as an actor, and so I said, that would be a 
that sounds like a cool idea. And so I went down, they hired me, and I was guaranteed 42 weeks out of the year. I never thought that the size of the part, my participation, would have any effect on me. But it was so minimal. I would have one or two lines a week with uh, with these guys that were just starting out in the business. They were very young. They hadn't done anything before, and they had as much to do that I, as I did. And my identity was coming from the kinds of billing, the kinds of roles, and I was billed under two young people just starting out. And I started to feel sorry for myself, and I started to drink. And my buddy Ted Knight, Ted, Ted and I were friends since the first day I went to California in 1957. He was guest star in McHale's Navy as an admiral or something like that in a, a big executive uh, role. And he said, man, how can you do this? He said, you're a glorified extra. Well, that started to work on me, a glorified extra. And then the director, he had certain times they were building new buildings at Universal. Then he said, you get up there, get up there happy and hide that building going up. So you put all that together and I just went, started to drink. I thought maybe this could help me deal with the situation. I had two kids, another one on the way. We had our house and all this. And uh, it reached a point one night I went to Tom Skerritt's house. We were very good friends at that time. We had done his first film together. And uh, I had too much to drink. And I was went up to Mulholland Drive. That's the top of a hill out here where you can oversee the entire L.A. area and the San Fernando area. And I said, it's not worth it, man. It's just not worth it. And I took that car and started to go off the cliff. And something, something made my right foot go on the brake. My two tires are all over. And I came to, and... I started to think a little more reasonably, and Robert Blake lived not far from there, and so I went to Robert, he said, what are you doing, man, at this hour? I said, oh, man, I just tried to do myself in, I'm, you know, I'm a glorified extra, and after all this work, or after all these credits I've had, and uh, he said, you know, you know, you've got to see a shrink, and so I said, you're right, and so... I went to see the shrink. I was there for about a month. And he said, you know what you have to do, don't you? I said, yeah. Yeah, I know. I have to get out, out of that show. And so slowly I waited. I had photographs to sign for the new season, and I just couldn't do it. And I called the producer's office. I said, can I see? Eddie Montaigne was his name, a great guy. I said, can I see him? And the secretary said, sure. So I came down. I said, Eddie... Um, I'm in a bad place here. I said, I had a career before McHale's Navy started, and uh, I don't I don't want to hide buildings anymore. You know, I want to play parts. I want to get into people like, like my career had been prior to this. And I said, you can save me and save my family by letting me out. Well, he let me out of the show, and again, I felt like a bird that was left out of a cage, and immediately I got a call from a friend who was directing My Favorite Martians. And I did three My Favorite Martians with my hair on and a suit and starting off. And then I got a call from Robert Wise. And he said, Gavin, you know, how tall are you? I said, how tall do you want me to be? <laughs> he said, well, I'm doing a movie with Steve McQueen. I said, we played brothers on Broadway. And he said, well... You're not taller? I said, no, Steve's taller than I am. He said, well, you got a 10-month job. We're going to do a picture called The Sand Pebbles. And that was how my career started in again. But that was the low point. That was the low point. Uh, it wasn't until years later when I realized that God is the source. God is where my identity comes from. And my role in life, really, the most important role that I've come to realize, is to serve God. 
Well, G- Gavin, we didn't mean to take you to a dark spot, but thank you so much for sharing that emotional story with us. And, and that's really what this program is about, you know, growing bolder, about yeah. taking the right kind of chances, uh, about taking some risk uh, in order Richard. to move... Move right. through, and you certainly did that. Hey, we, we, we just got about two and a half minutes left, and there's so oh, much. I'm sorry. I no, don't re- no, okay. no okay. that was a fabulous story, and we just want to cover some more ground very quickly. That's the first time I've ever spoken that. Uh, it, and it was a great story, and thank you for that very much. You're welcome. Is it true you almost, or you auditioned for the role of Archie Bunker? They sent me to New York. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Oh, yeah. I just I had just done a big valley. I had been thrown off a horse. I was on a cane. <laughs> I was in bad shape. But uh, Marianne Rees, who was Norman Lear's assistant, I had met before with Norman. He wanted me to do another series years ago. And they sent for me. She said, uh, he wants Carol to do it, but I think you're right. So they sent me to New York. I said, well, I'll be able to see my brother and my grandmother and my mom. I'll have a little visit. And so I was on a cane. I was on a cane when I went to New York, and I finally went up to... uh, I went to the restaurant where I used to work as a cashier. Everybody was different. Nobody knew who anybody was. And I finally went up to Norman's offices up there, and I went to the men's room, and who's coming in next to me urinating is Norman. I said, funny, we should be meeting this way. (laughs) (laughs) And I went and I read, and uh, then I come back and read again, and uh, I said, I have to get a train up to my brother's house. They said, we'll call you tomorrow. And they called the next day, and I told my brother that night, I said, Ron, i got to tell you something. This has been a wonderful trip to come home like this, but I could never play this part. I, I, I don't like bigotry in any shape or form. I don't, I don't like this. If I get it, I'll do it, but I don't. This, this is not going to be my kind of part. And so they called the next day, and they said, we loved your reading, but Norman's going to go with Carol. I said, oh, great. Carol and I were in the same theater group. We wrote plays and did things together for years and years and years. I said, oh, great. My time will come. And my time eventually came. But that's the honest to God, too, true story. Yeah. And, and you know, Gavin, I, never, I never like to talk about that. It sounds like sour grapes. But I had my show and I was so happy on my, my you know, my show. And, and it's not really sour grapes, Gavin. What your story proves is that in life, even though we don't get it at the time, things seem to come together for never a reason. That's one of the themes of my book. And, and, and a great book. And, and that's why we wanted to bring you on the show. And that's why we're so happy that you were a, a courageous enough to, to really expose what that's like. Because we see celebrities and we think their lives are all glitz and glamour. And you're a guy who has brought us so many great moments, so many memorable moments, and created such vibrant and wonderful characters Gavin, that I hope your book is as big a hit as you are. It's called This Is Your Captain Speaking. No doubt a fascinating read by a fascinating man, Mr. Gavin McLeod. Up next, an incredible story of triumph over tragedy. And then... What do you do and how does it affect who you are? Labels can be a dangerous thing, but I'll show you how to break away from stereotypes and pursue your true passion. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. Elizabeth St. Hilaire is an artist whose work is a reflection of herself. It's bright, cheerful, and very humorous, too. But Elizabeth's life has not always been those things. In fact, it was ripped apart as a young college student when she lost some of her closest friends to an act of terror. And that day, Elizabeth vowed to live her life in a way her friends were never able to do. Go ahead, no barking. Another busy day begins for Elizabeth St. Hilaire. With the kids fed and the laundry underway, she sends Connor off to school. Love you. Have a good day. Great. 
See you later. Mm. Little chapstick for you. Thanks. <laughs> Gets in a quick run and heads to the office to check overnight emails. My commute is fantastic. I can walk from down the hall and work at home, be home when my kids get home from school. Have a good day. After seeing Emily off to school, Bye. Elizabeth heads to her backyard studio to create the collage paintings that are quickly gaining national attention. I describe the collages as paper paintings because I want them to look like a painting uh, until you get close and look at them close up and realize that they are actually created from torn pieces of paper. Her work not only hangs in her house, but also in major galleries from coast to coast, and she just opened her first ever solo museum show. If Elizabeth seems motivated to make the most of every day, she is, and with good reason. In 1988, as a 20-year-old Syracuse University student studying in London, Elizabeth and her friends were on the verge of making their mark on the world. On December 21st, 35 of her classmates boarded Pan Am Flight 103 to fly home for Christmas. Elizabeth stayed behind to explore Germany. Her friends never made it home. A terrorist bomb ripped apart their plane over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing all 270 aboard. I had three of my four roommates in that crash, and my one roommate was only 19 years old. And um, I think about them uh, never getting married, never having children, never achieving the career that they were studying for in college. I think that really motivated me to do everything that I wanted to do and not to say, well, I'll do that when I retire, or I'll do that 15 years from now, because I honestly think all the time that there's no guarantee, so I want to do what I want to do and try new things every day or as I go along, I don't want to, I don't want to wait. And now there is no wait, no hesitate in Elizabeth. She didn't hesitate to quit her job and start her own company. She fearlessly threw herself into her art and didn't hesitate to ask her brother to build a studio out back so she could work at home at all hours, day and night. When her sister suggested she compete in her first triathlon at age 40, she answered the only way she could. Absolutely. And there were several times when I said, I can't, I got to stop. And she said, no. And she held my hand and pulled me across the finish line. Um, and I was really hooked. Then I was hooked. I mean, it was such an amazing feeling, you know, to have accomplished that. When she couldn't quiet the music in her mind, she dusted off her violin and became a member of the local symphony. But next to her family, painting is her greatest passion and her process is unique. She hand paints her own paper, organizing by color and then tearing it by hand to create what appears from afar to be brush strokes. But close up, it's revealed as torn sheet music, postage stamps, newspapers, nursery rhymes, handwritten letters, and even her kids' old homework. <laughs> Definitely have the kids' school homework. I have a whole drawer of that down the bottom. I like to put um, something in there that when a person looks and stays a little longer, they find a little hidden something special, whether it's my son's handwriting or the nursery rhyme book or a map with a location of um, Asheville, North Carolina. With other artists interested in learning her techniques, Elizabeth openly shares as much as possible at workshops, but she didn't hesitate to write a book and create a DVD to reach and teach many more. But rest assured, collage is a very forgiving medium. Today, being a great artist isn't enough. It also takes great marketing, and Elizabeth has the best marketing expert around. You guessed it, herself. I do a lot of blogging, Facebook, I do printed materials, postcards, brochures. I'm always updating my website, my resume. Now that you're on my list, you'll be the recipient of my email blasts. <laughs> great marketing can get an artist noticed, but only great art can land a solo show in a museum like the newly renovated Maitland Art Center. To have a solo exhibition here and to have 46 pieces um, in this venue is just fantastic. A gallery show is one thing, but a museum show is something else. Once you've had a museum show, and especially if it's a one-person show, then generally the price of the work the very next week is going to increase by, I'd say, at least 50%.
It hasn't all been easy for Elizabeth. Like every artist, like every person, she struggles, but nothing stops her. Not even being self-conscious about her looks from a 12-year battle with Bell's palsy, a disease that causes paralysis of facial muscles. Statistically, 85% of people heal spontaneously with no residual effects. So the fact that I'm one of those 15% who 12 years later still has partial paralysis kind of makes me mad. <laughs> And I have ways of overcoming it, like I'm sitting this way and I'm taking pictures three quarters. In every other way, Elizabeth St. Hilaire Nelson takes life head on. Her solo museum show is called Exquisite Harmony, which is a great description for the life she's created. I am achieving that goal that I set years ago of uh, making sure that my life was full and that I did what I wanted to do and that I didn't uh, look back and say, I wish I, I wish I had done that. No fear, no regrets, no missed opportunities. A great role model for her kids and a living memorial to close friends lost long ago. Their memory and her determination are the glue that holds the many pieces of her life together. I feel like I could, uh, I could say to them that, uh, you know, I've tried to, uh, to keep you in my heart and, and, you know, do things with them in mind. What a beautiful story, and Elizabeth is so well-spoken. You'll be pleased to know that her art career has really expanded in the last year. Galleries and museums today are anxious to host her shows. Collectors are driving the price of her work up, and she's hosting workshops all across the nation to help others learn to do what she does. The following segment is dedicated to the memory of Wendy Chioji. You're now enjoying, or one day will, have a life stage that has never existed before in the history of humankind. The very real prospect of three, maybe four decades of active life after normal retirement age. So what are you going to do with yours? Here's Wendy Chioji to give you an idea or two. Hi, I'm Wendy Chioji. If you're retired, you're no longer defined by your job. If you're an empty nester, your children no longer define you. If you're widowed or divorced, your spouse no longer defines you. It's frightening. It's disturbing. It's liberating. Decide to become the person you want to be. And remember, when you're trying to change, you need support. You will probably have friends and maybe even family who don't want you to change. And not only won't they encourage you, they'll sabotage your efforts by being negative. Mark Twain said, keep away from people who try to belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that, but the really great make you feel that you too can become great. So do your family and friends support your dreams? Are they encouragers or discouragers? And more important, do you support their dreams? We all need encouragement and support. A few words can have a huge impact. So be an encourager and surround yourself with people who support your dream. Up next, how lessons learned about the art of significance just may have you reconsidering your priorities. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. I'm Bill Schaefer back with Growing Boulder, and our next guest, you could say, is a renaissance man. He's the CEO of a multi-million dollar corporation and one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. He's an entertainer, a songwriter, recording artist, a New York Times best-selling author, and an expert on success, and he says that we've got the idea of success all wrong, that it's not about bigger houses and cooler cars and more money, and he's written a book about just that called The Art 
of significance. Let's welcome Dan Clark. How you doing, Dan? Good, Bill. How are you? Thanks for having me on your show. Well, I'm a little disappointed. I mean, I thought it was all about bigger houses, cooler cars, and more money, and here you are saying not so. You know, I've uh, kind of done the talk show circuit now on the book tour, and the most frequently asked question is, what? what's the title about? What's the difference between success and significance? And in a nutshell, successful people get what they want, but at the end of the day, too many of us die with our music still in us. So the idea is to strive for a life of significance, which means we want what we get. Wow, that's pretty good. Say that, say that once more. Well, maybe I'll even I'll, I'll just define it in an experience. A football player friend of mine, he was a teammate. He was drafted in the National Football League in the second round. After four years in the league at the top of his game, he walks out of practice never to play again. Why? He loved being a football player, but he hated playing football. He got what he wanted, but he hated what he got. He loved the celebrity perks, the, the fame and the fortune that allowed him an existence. That's the operative word, an existence of success, but because his inner voice was misaligned with his purpose, he could never enjoy a life of significance. Dan, you're a dangerous guy. You know why? <laughs> you make sense. And you're making everybody, all of us, we're stopping to think for a minute, wait a minute, is that me? Something else you say that kind of blew me away, it's not about team because teams lose. Yeah, whoever said it's not, whether you win or lose, the count's probably lost. <laughs> and yet you'll hear speaker after speaker, seminar presenter after seminar presenter come up and sh- you know show up and say, there's no I in team. And I'm like, come on, man, with the tongue in cheek, well, there's no I in socks either. There's no I in loser. There's no I in last place. And yet there's two I's in winning. The first I represents independent individual preparation. And I break this law down into ten commitments. Uh, the, the, the first I in winning represents independent individual preparation, a commitment to the first six commitments, the first six C's, clarity, character, competence, consistency, competitiveness, and cause. Once we answer why, figuring out the how-to is pretty simple. I've been in Super Bowl locker rooms right before kickoff, and the silent prayer of every athlete is, please don't let me be the weak link. The second I in winning represents interdependent collaboration, which is a commitment to the last four C's, which is chemistry. At the end of the day, it's not what you do, it's who you do it with. You know, you put a hard-to-catch horse in the same field with an easy-to-catch horse, most of the time you end up with two hard-to-catch horses. You put a healthy child in the same room with a sick child, most of the time you end up with two sick children. Moral of the story, to be be disciplined, healthy, and significant, we have to hang around with the disciplined, healthy, and significant. Uh, C number eight, excuse me, Contribution, contribution. C number nine is uh, is uh, collaboration, and C number ten is conclusion. <clears throat> so yes, it is about team, Bill. But the teams that win have the greatest number of individual I players on them. Don't let me be the weak link. Did you get hit by lightning at some point in your life? Where did this come from? You know, I played football for 13 years. I was paralyzed in a tackling drill. 14 months I was paralyzed. 16 doctors told me I wouldn't get better. As I started to get better, I was asked to speak. And now that I've recovered, the most frequently asked question is, Clark, why were you paralyzed for 14 months? And the answer is pretty profound but pretty simple. I stayed paralyzed, not just physically but emotionally. I stayed paralyzed because I was asking the wrong questions. I was asking the doctors how to get better when I should have been asking myself why. And once we answer why, figuring out how to, how to do it, how what to do is, is pretty obvious. And it's not always easy, you know, as we learned in the movies. If it was easy, everybody would do it. The heart is what makes it significant. But it is simple. Plus, we become the average of the five people we associate with the most, which means, as Max Lucado said, we must be willing to pay any price and travel any distance to associate with extraordinary human beings. So that's why I'm a professional speaker. I'm asked to speak, but I love to talk about significance because when you get a group of individuals for a corporation or an association in a room and you can inspire them and we laugh and cry and experience an emotional roller coaster ride together and then be able to look left and right and see that we become the average of the five people we associate with the most, it's pretty easy for us to create a significant environment where we can start talking about significance and leave success behind. And yes, the question is always asked, do you have to be successful before you can be significant? The answer is yeah, and the reason why is because we have to be able to compare us and contrast the difference between the two of them. Dan, when is it too late? When is it? When have we passed the point of uh, being able to turn our lives around? Never. It's absolutely never, ever past the point. 
and success could be a high school, you know, wrestling coach who's about winning the championship. And yeah, that's the focus. You know, the significance of a gold medal is to win it. And there's only one. I was on the Olympic Committee in 2002. But what we need to do is then take our lives to the point of significance. It's where the basketball coach allows his his manager with autism to come out and play the last five minutes of the game. And that's the, you know, we've seen that email. It's gone viral where the kid scores six three-pointers in a row. It's the wrestling champion who allows the kid with Down syndrome to pin him in his last match because he's already qualified for the state tournament. And he's going to give something more to this kid and his experience and his life and his family and the fans than, a, than winning a, a match would ever do. So it's never too late. And in fact, you know, as parents, we have to understand that that we're still responsible for our children. We, Regardless of their age, we have to give them counsel. And I have a middle daughter who's so beautiful and talented. She's a very accomplished songwriter, recording artist in Nashville. And because of the way things work, she's attracted to the bad boys of the band because the bad boys of the band, the front men, are always attracted to her. And as a conservative dad, I'm like, McCall, at some point you got to stop because you can get what you want. It's obvious. You have all the tools and the beauty, the talent, the smarts. You can get what you want, but at some point, don't you want to pause long enough and back up to make sure you're wanting what you get? Yeah, 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 Daddy. And then one day I had an epiphany. I said, McCall, you're a dog. She goes, Daddy, I have a great relationship with her. She says, Daddy, I said, McCall, you're a dog chasing cars. What are you going to do with the car if you catch it? Is it just going to drag you down the road, bouncing you along the asphalt? And finally the bells and whistles went off, and she smiled and says, I get it. No longer does she date the bad boys of the band. She doesn't want to just get what she wants. We all owe it to ourselves, Bill, to want what we get at the end of the day so that our lives matter, so that we live, leave a legacy of leadership behind. You know what? On October 22nd, I went up into space. It's a classified altitude. I can't talk about it, but if you do the math, you know, we're over 15 miles above the Earth's surface. I was up there for three hours and 45 minutes in a U-2 spy plane. There's a 15-minute YouTube, if any of your listeners ever want to do a Dan Clark U-2 spy plane. But I'm up there. I can see the curvature of the Earth. I'm looking into the blackness of space. And I clicked off the hot mic so I had no real-time communication with my commander so I could be alone with myself in the sounds of silence. And what occurred to me is that everything we can take with us when we die, I had aboard with me on that aircraft. Our education, yeah, it's important. Our character, how do we deal with our adversity? Our convictions, what do we really believe? And maybe even more significant, did, did, did our lives matter? Did we leave a legacy? Do people actually say, I like me best when I'm with you, I want to see you again? And that's the goal. When we come into a business, when we come into a sales environment, when we come into a family setting, the goal is for us to talk about significant things and encourage each other to be significant so that we don't leave uh, you know, shallow, but we leave in better shape than we found each other saying, I like me best when I'm with you. I want to see you again. Now you know, folks, why we wanted to get him on the book, The Art of Significance. Look up danclarkspeak.com. Great visit. Open in our minds with Dan Clark. Coming up next, an author you'll fall in love with who keeps writing and keeps creating even though she's in her 90s. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, unique land. Bill Schaefer here, and this is Growing Boulder. Our next guest is the 90-year-old author of four books and a regular columnist for the Huffington Post. She's the daughter of a bootlegger who was murdered by mobsters during the Prohibition era, so 
That's what she writes about. In fact, she was named the 2012 Historical Author of the Year for her novel The Hat. Now, the secret, the sequel to The Hat is called The Red Scarf, and it has just been released, and you should hear the buzz around this book. Let's say hi to 90-year-old Babette Hughes. Hi, Babette. Hi, Bill. It's lovely to be here with you. Oh, my, you are not 90, are you? I am. And, in fact, I will be 91 in November. Can you can you believe you're even saying that? <laughs> Babette, when you were like 20, did you ever know anybody who was 90, much less a 90-year-old novelist? No. No, and I have to tell you that I'm halfway through the sequel to The Red Hat. Already? My fifth book. Oh, what is that one going to be called? The Necklace. And and it it goes in it in the series, right? Right. Man, you you know your story is just as interesting as your books are. I read that your father passed away when when you were two, and your mother told you that he died of pneumonia, but she wasn't telling you the truth. No, no. Uh, when I was twelve years old, I went down to the library and read about all the head, read about the story and the murders and the headlines. It was quite for its time, nineteen twenty four. Uh, it was quite a shocking gang murder. Later they became more common, but uh, this was one of the first in the country. So he was like the, you know, that we think the image that we think in, in our minds of the gangster kind of a, a rub out that happened to your dad. He, but you know what? He was from a middle class Jewish family. He was a black sheep. They all the other siblings were, you know, regular middle class family people. But he was different, and he was a wild kid. He was only in his 20s when he was murdered. So when you learned this, Kate, did you start thinking to yourself, Babette, that, hey, maybe I got a little bit of wild side in me, too? (laughs) You know, my mom worried about my brother because he was a wild adolescent, and she used to cry and fold her hand and say, oh, my God, what's going to become of him? But uh, no, maybe because I was a girl. Uh, that that didn't occur to me. We were just so focused on my brother. Yeah, but it came out in you just in a little different way, didn't it? All three of your books follow this character, Kate Brady, all the way from the age of 18 up to 80. Are, right. you, are you Kate Brady? Oh, Bill, what a great <laughs> question. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure any writer brings something of themselves into the part. Mm. Uh, whether it's conscious or unconscious, you know, I'm, don't you think? I'm almost by definition. Do, do you sometimes wish they, wow, you know, I'm 90, almost 91. Why didn't I do this when I was 30? Oh, gosh, I am such a much better person than when I was 30. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, it seems to me that our culture sends all the wrong messages about aging. You know, the focus on youth and the focus on material things, it's just not it. It's not where it is for having, you know, a good, productive life. You know, the problem is you have to make it to 90 to realize that, and not enough of us do. I know, and that's why, you know, I love talking to you, because I, I, can, I can share this. I can tell you how it has enhanced my life instead of made it more limited. Now, now, since you're going that direction, let me let everybody know, I think it was like five years ago that you had a battle with breast cancer. Yes. Now, what did that experience teach you? How did it change you? Well, one thing it did, it it inspired me to write a really good piece about it. Yep, and in in that piece, you talked about how cancer sort of explodes some old relationships and seals others in. Now, what were you talking about? I was talking about a profound change within a, a person's uh, conscious and unconscious mind when they are confronted with death and when they are confronted with a new way to think and a new way to see themselves. When you see yourself in a new way, you see others in a new way. Don't you think? You know, so you're saying that cancer helped open your mind in ways that you hadn't even done yet. Uh, oh, well, it goes on. You're absolutely right. It, it, it's, uh, what can I say? It's, it's a momentum, you know? And the momentum keeps... 
reinforcing and learning. Do you want to? Do you sometimes want to reach out, Babette, and grab us by the lapels and shake us and say, "Don't you see what's really important?" Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it, I think you're right that sometimes it just takes years and years to understand. But you know, again, that's why I love talking to you. That's why I love writing. You know what? There, there's this being old. There's a quality of like moral nerve and a certain toughness and a certain freedom, and you never hear about that. You mm-hmm. just hear about how great it is to be young. And I don't think it was so great to be young. Do you? Uh, you know what? I, and if I was like you, I would love every day. So let me do this right now, girl. Let me turn the microphone over to you. What do you want us to know, Babette? What do you want us to understand about life? Okay. Let, let, let me organize my thoughts here. Again, we, we uh, culture is not understanding what really matters. Age is not a disability. It's not. It's an intense and varied experience, and it calls forth new ideas and strengths that weren't available in our youth. And what else? There's more freedom. There's more wisdom. Again, I love that term moral nerve and a certain toughness. Oh, and you know what else? Freeing yourself from the expectations of others. And I don't think you know how to do that when you're young. Boy, those are great points. And you, you know what the best part of all is, Babette, is that you're out there and you're willing to talk to people and to let everybody know. And all these things that, that you're saying now, they come through in your books. And I really would encourage people to pick up Babette Hughes's series of books, The Red Scarf, The Hat. There's more to come because if you love great drama and insightful storytelling, and that's something that's timeless, you really need to check out Babette Hughes. And Babette, thank you so much for your wisdom for your good health, and for your willingness to help show the rest of us the way. What a great role model. Coming up next, one of America's top creative coaches on how to tap into your inner artist. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer, and our next guest is one of America's top creativity coaches, somebody who's worked with MacArthur Fellows, Academy Award winners, painters, writers, musicians, and more, helping them all find success. He holds bachelor's degrees in philosophy and psychology, master's degrees in creative writing and counseling, and a doctorate in counseling psychology. He's the author of over 40 books on a wide variety of subjects. His latest is Making Your Creative Mark, Nine Keys to Achieving Your Artistic Goals. So let's welcome Eric Mizell. How are you, Eric? I'm great, Bill. How are you doing today? It's great to have a chance to talk to you. Let's let's talk a little bit about your book, Making Your Creative Mark. Uh, who's that book for, Eric? Is it for people who have achieved at a high level? Is it for artists, or is it for anybody? Well, it's actually for anybody because the keys are about things like uh, thinking correctly and feeling more confident and creating more passion in your life, reducing your stress. So it's for everybody, but... It is also really specifically for working creative and performing artists, for folks who not only want to be everyday creative, but who have self-identified as a writer or a painter or a musician and who are out there in the marketplace because the marketplace is pretty brutal itself. So a lot of the help in the book is about that aspect of the creative life, namely 
dealing with the marketplace. Eric, in the time that you've been doing this, have, are you seeing a change? You know, you talked about how brutal it is. Has it gotten worse lately? It's gotten better and worse. You know, it's very complicated. For a writer, for instance, uh, it may be harder to get a literary agent. It may be harder to find a traditional publisher, but it's much easier to self-publish. There's no um, stigma attached to self-publishing anymore. Many of our bestsellers nowadays are self-published. So it's a very complicated uh, landscape for creative and performing artists. They have to keep on their toes. They have to not sort of fight technology and fight the new things that are coming because if they embrace what's available, they can maybe have more success than an artist 10 or 20 or 30 years might have had without these opportunities. You know, something interesting that technology has kind of allowed, I mean, it's given all of us a chance to think, well, you know, maybe I'm a creative person. Maybe I can start doing a, a webcast, and which is almost like having your own TV show or, a, you know, a blogspot radio program or writing an e-book. I mean, it seems that there are more outlets for creativity than ever before. There are. If you don't end up with an audience, it's very hard to sustain that. So what a lot of creative folks do is they start one of these things. They, they do jewelry on day one and start a, you know, a blog on day two, and etc. <clears throat> and because there isn't a tremendously large response to begin with, they get frustrated. They don't have what Virginia Woolf called an echo, nothing coming back to them. Yeah. So they don't want to continue it. So sticking, staying, with, staying the course and sticking with it is, is one of the secrets of the creative life. You have to have a lot of resiliency, a lot of patience, a lot of savvy, and keep doing it day in and day out. You can't really expect results on day one. Things may take half a year or a full year. It's hard to do that. It's hard to keep working at something for half a year without a response, but that's often what it takes. Now, so how, how do we know if we're creative or not, or, or is everybody creative? The way, I, the way I express it is that there are lots of meaning opportunities in life. I don't want to sell folks on the idea that they're somehow supposed to be creative. It's only one of the ways that provoke the psychological experience of meaning. Relationships provoke that experience, service, activism. We could name a lot of things that create the experience of meaning in our lives. However, for a lot of people, creativity is one of their prime meaning opportunities they fell in love with books and reading when they were five. They fell in love with movies. They fell in love with music, something along those lines. And something about that resonates for all time. So if you are one of those people who fell in love with one of the arts early on and you've been pining to do it your whole life, that probably means that you do have to express yourself in the arts. You do have to get on with being a creative person. You know, it seems, Eric, there is, there is kind of a side effect that goes with creativity, and it, I guess it's that tortured artist complex. And I guess it turns out that a lot of artists do battle depression or anxieties. And, and you've even said that that's good for creative types. Why is that? No, I wouldn't say it's good. I would say that it's natural and inevitable, and that's not quite the same as good. I don't think sadness feels good, uh, but it does come with the territory, and I think that the creative life mimics. It isn't, but it mimics bipolar disorder in the sense that we get enthusiastic about something, just as you were saying, we get enthusiastic about our blog or whatever, and we are up for a little while, and then we have no viewers, and we wonder if our blog matters, and we go down. So we're on this roller coaster with ups, with manic episodes, and then with downs, with sadness. Because the work is hard to do, and, and that's one of the little secrets of the creative life, is that the work's hard to do. It's hard to spend two years on a novel. Many of those days for those two years, you're going to be sad because the book isn't working. So and I've done a whole book on this called The Van Gogh Blues, which is about existential depression or existential sadness, namely the feeling that our work doesn't really matter and that our efforts don't really matter. There is a lot of sadness in the arts. I don't think it's welcome. I don't think anybody likes it, but I fear it's both natural and inevitable. Another thing that comes along with what you're talking about is mistakes. You know, we all make them, and and a fear of making mistakes is is another source of of huge anxiety. Not just anxiety, but it stops people <clears throat> in their tracks. Mm. People, everybody intellectually understands that the creative process must come with mistakes and messes. Everybody gets that as an idea. How could you not get that as an idea? We know that even the greatest artists have failures. So everybody gets it intellectually. Viscerally, everybody hates it. They just hate the idea of spending two years on a book that ultimately doesn't work. But 
that's the genuine process. We have to have more than intellectual permission to make mistakes and messes. We have to have real visceral permission to make mistakes and messes. We have to really buy that idea and accept that only a percentage of our work is going to be successful. That's a very mature idea. People want everything they do to be successful. That's not going to happen. Only a percentage of our work is going to be successful, which is why we want to think of life as a body of work as opposed to the thing we're invested in right in front of us. Over time, we'll have a nice body of work, but the thing in front of us may not be working. That's a great point, Eric. I I think no matter who we are, all of us want to leave something behind after we're done, something of worth, something of value. And that's why this book is so interesting. It's called Making Your Creative Mark, Nine Keys to Achieving Your Artistic Goals. You can learn more about the book and its compelling author at ericmisel.com. Thanks so much, Eric. Well, we hope you've enjoyed today's program, but more importantly, that it's inspired you to start growing bolder even just a little bit in your own life. If there is one thing we've learned over the years of doing this program, it's that a fear of failure keeps most people from discovering who they really are, from creating the life that they can have. So get out there and don't be afraid to make some mistakes. Have fun. Try new things. Meet new people. And of course, we're here to help. You can find Growing Boulder not only here on the radio, but also Growing Boulder TV, GrowingBoulder.com, and Growing Boulder Magazine. And if you haven't already, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, and we'll keep you up to date on all things Growing Boulder. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon Said I Proud me, heated brow Ah, but I was so much old